from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today in Capital Notes, we'll explore what's at stake in the redistricting case that's coming before the state Supreme Court tomorrow. Then we'll look at a podcast exploring how partisan politics is affecting communities throughout the U.S. In the country, you hear this great sense of anxiety that it's ripped families apart, literally. We talked to a woman in Rockford who's a farmer and she hasn't talked to her sister for 18 months because of politics. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We'll look at a recent report on climate change that shows how the Midwest is being affected. For those of us who live in the Midwest who had poor air quality this summer, we experienced climate change. That's climate change. And so we need to, I think, to connect the dots, right, to mobilize people towards action. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. The Wisconsin Supreme Court is taking up a case that could have a huge impact on 2024 elections. WUWM's Mayan Silver breaks it down in Capital Notes. From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Ayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WizPolitics.com. He provides a roundup of the Wisconsin developments you need to know. Here's our latest conversation. Hi, J.R. Welcome back to Capital Notes. Good to chat with you. No, oh, thanks for having me. So it's going to be a big week in the state Supreme Court this week. Tomorrow, there are oral arguments in the efforts by Democratic voters in Wisconsin who are hoping to undo Republican-drawn legislative district maps. There's currently a liberal majority on the court. What do people need to know about this case? Well, so big picture, this is a case about whether there's going to be a new map, right? Um, And can a new map be in place for 2024? The court seems to be on a timeline that it could get a new map in place. And if there is one, the expectation is it would be a better map for Democrats. The question is by how much. Um, The map we have right now was basically built off of the one Republicans created in 2011. It gives them a huge advantage and has helped lock in big majorities in both houses for them. A number of issues are at play in this case. To give you kind of one example, there's a question about whether it's okay to have municipal islands, they call them, in districts. So let's take an assembly seat, right? Some assembly seats right now have non-contiguous territory. It's basically like a plot of land that doesn't touch anything else in that district. And the argument from the Democrats is that that's not allowed. Now, that's been in place for a long time, and prior courts have been okay with it. But the argument is that's that's not okay and that the courts got it wrong. So that's an example of one of the nitty-gritty issues we're going to get into. Another one to watch is how this court handles this case and if this thing ends up getting appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, the arguments are really about state law, state constitution, the requirements there. But Republicans are putting up a, a complaint that liberal justice Anna Prosewich is hearing this case, even though she called the current maps rigged during the her spring campaign, and the fact that the Democratic Party of Wisconsin gave her about $10 million for her campaign. They claim that is not appropriate. So even if the Supreme Court of Wisconsin rules in favor of Democrats, picks a new map that's good for Democrats or better for the ones they have right now, you could still see this case be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court on the basis that 
Republicans argue she shouldn't be hearing that case. It's a violation of due process. The big question there is whether the U.S. Supreme Court would hear that case, even take it, and two, would it be enough to delay things? And really for Republicans, they feel like they're going to lose with this court just because of the makeup of the court, um, you know, philosophically and two, pro se, which is comments. They know that it's going to be tough for them. Their kind of best hope is to delay a ruling until after the 2024 election and see they live to fight another day, essentially. They can get past this through this campaign with the maps they have right now. And then what? You know, in 2025, Justice Bradley, a member of the Liberal Coalition, will be up for re-election. You know, could that possibly be an avenue to, to defeat her and change the time? I mean, they're all, all kinds of what-ifs. But there's a combination of legal arguments going on this week and timing that are really key in what the outcome is going to be for the Capitol with these, this case. Would Democrats argue that in 2017, the Republican-led Wisconsin Supreme Court quashed a proposed rule that would have required justices to recuse themselves yep. from cases involving campaign donors? Yes, absolutely. That's been up before. Now, what they're pointing to, though, is a U.S. Supreme Court some years ago, and it's called the Caperton decision. The case out of West Virginia, there was a person elected to the Supreme Court. A single donor made up about $3 million of what was uh, spent on that race. It was the majority of what was spent, I believe, if I remember correctly. The person who was elected ruled in that donor's favor in a regulatory case. Um, and the Supreme Court back then said that was inappropriate, that there was a clear case there that the justice should have recused from that case. Now, a lot's changed since then, though. One, the majority in that case, the 5 majority of the U.S. Supreme Court, has changed. Majority is basically all gone. The minor- only people left were in the minority. Three conservatives who argued there should not be a standard set by the court on when a justice sh- should recuse, a judge should recuse. So there's that question, right? Two, you know, even though the uh, Democrat Party gave was $10 million, you know, I tracked at least 55, 56 million spent in that race overall. So it's a much different, in that perspective, situation. Still, for Republicans, they're looking for any avenue they can explore to try to stop this because, again, they feel like the court is stacked against them. They're looking for options to try and avoid having a new map drawn compared to the one they have right now, which they like. And when you say it's a much different situation, you mean because GOP-backed candidates were also funded by campaign donors and things like well, that? just the, the, the scale. So that one donor in West Virginia made up the majority of the money spent in that, ca- in that race with that $3 million. $10 million is way more than $3 million, right? But that $10 million in perspective of the entire spending in the campaign, it wasn't the dominant number. That's what I'm talking about. That There's a, a much different uh, situation with those two campaigns uh, those situations. I see what you're saying. And also big picture, we've talked about this on Capital Notes before, but you've said that redistricted maps, if the ones that are more favorable to Democrats get in place, they would more likely make a difference in the state Senate rather than the assembly. Can you fill people back in on that? So I'm not an expert map drawer. I'm just a journalist, but I'm a dork about redistricting. And I've you know talked to enough experts that I know that if you want to draw a map that produced a 50-50 chance for either party to control the Senate, you could do it. Um, I could go district by district with you and show like where I'd push some lines here or there to make it happen. The Assembly's a different story. Republicans have a built-in advantage because of where voters live. The Democratic Party's brand has cratered in rural Wisconsin. There are not any more really rural Democrats left in either house. There are a couple who have rural districts, but you know a lot of places that used to be blue, they're now deep red. 
So it's harder to draw a 50-50 map in the assembly because you just don't have voters living places where you need. Now, you could draw one if you gerrymander the heck out of the state. Like if you took Madison and made districts come out of there like bike spokes, right? Like a, of a pie almost, and try to take Madison and stretch it into Republican areas or instead of Milwaukee. But it would be very difficult to do just because, again, where people live and how they vote. The Senate's a different story. So you could get that 50-50 map, but even if you are a diehard Democrat who's placing all your hopes and dreams of a, a blue capital after this case, it's probably not going to happen. You're going to have a difficult time winning the assembly, barring, you know, a wave year. Now, at the same time, uh, there is no chance for Democrats to win the assembly. None. I mean, even if you win by 10, 12, you, there's just not a chance there to, to win the state assembly. Um, the Senate, very, 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 very difficult. So there would be a, a much different dynamic. And two, you might see different personalities in the Capitol. Um, there's a huge question out there. If there's a new map about whether Assembly Speaker Robin Voss would be drawn into a new district with another Republican. You know, they're actually insiders I talked to are almost betting that Democrats would do that, trying to make Voss's life difficult. For example, he's not far from Tyler August, the majority leader in the Assembly. Tyler is kind of like the speaker-in-waiting. There's an expectation that Robin Voss, when he leaves or retires, that Tyler would take over. If in the same district, what would Robin Voss do, right? There's things like that that are really interesting to watch with those maps, however they come out from the court. Interesting. Okay. You're tuned into Capital Notes. I'm Mayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WizPolitics.com. So next, we'll turn to the much-maneuvered deal to help the Milwaukee Brewers repair their stadium over the next three decades. A bipartisan group of lawmakers approved a plan to spend nearly half a billion dollars in public funding to do this. Why is this important, and what do people need to know? Well, it, it, it keeps the Brewers in Wisconsin through at least 2050, and they're doing it with public money. Um, also, you should note that when that stadium deal expires in 27 years, 26 years, they'll probably be back for more and probably for a new stadium. So let's first look at the Brewers have a, had a contract with the state, actually the stadium district, um, to maintain what was originally Miller Park, the American Family Field, for years. And that contract requires the state to do certain things for upkeep. Um, now, people can argue if it's a good deal or a bad deal, but that's the way it was drawn up some years ago. The district board doesn't have the money to cover the, 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 the maintenance. There's a real possibility if the state had done something that the brewers could sue and say, hey, you, you have to do this, or B, they would look to leave. And the challenge for the state is that the state owns about two-thirds of that stadium. So if the brewers left, there would be an empty building uh, that we would – own as taxpayers, essentially, with no team in it. That's not a great thing to look at. So that was the big impetus for this. Uh, this plan has changed a lot from what it looked like this spring. The governor first in February actually proposed taking $290 million of state mo money and putting it into a fund, investing it, and having it cover those costs over through 2043. Uh, 2043. Now you're looking at the state putting in money, Milwaukee County and the city putting in money, and then the brewers putting in money. There's also going to be a ticket surcharge on non-brewers events. It all comes together to help cover maintenance costs going forward. Um, some big things to watch with this are one, you know, what's it look like in 26 years, 27 years? If you look around Major League Baseball, there were a half dozen teams that played in stadiums 50 years or that were 50 years old or older. Um, you know, one of them's like Wrigley Field down in Chicago, one's Fenway Park out in Boston. They have a lot of history. American Family Field, while a nice place to do a baseball game, doesn't have that kind of history. 
So once this deal is up, the expectation is that you would see the Brewers probably come back and say, hey, we need a new stadium. Then what do you do? And as much as people didn't like the idea of giving state, you know, state and local money to a privately owned professional sports team, it's kind of like the cost of doing business. If you're going to have a professional sports team in your state, you kind of end up having taxpayers pick up part of the tab. It's a reality around the leagues. I'm not saying it's good, bad, or indifferent. It's just kind of the way it works. So nobody, I don't know if anybody really enjoyed the idea of doing this deal, but they also didn't want to see the Brewers go away. And so you saw in the Senate uh, with the vote, a bipartisan vote between the Republicans and Democrats that people weren't necessarily thrilled with the idea, but they also wanted to be able to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to just put my foot down and say absolutely not, and then watch the Brewers leave. Can you give like a short, simple snapshot of the representation on the board? I guess one of the concerns was that Milwaukee County and the city didn't have any representation on this district board that um, that oversees the stadium, despite being required to pitch in for the cost. Yeah, they, they made a change in the end to try and address that issue. So there are two real big changes in the final version of the bill. One was taking the ticket surcharge and making it, uh, increasing it over the 27-year period uh, twice. So it put in place, add to it twice more after that. And then two, change the makeup of the district board. So before, it was going to be a nine-member board, um, four from the governor, four from the majority party legislature, and one from the team with the team submitting team names the governor for it to pick one person from that list. They added a couple more appointments, both for Evers and for lawmakers. With the governor's picks, they will come from Milwaukee County and the city. So that gets that representation there. Lawmakers got two more, the majority party. That makes it a 13-member board, but it keeps it split 6-6 six, six between gubernatorial picks and legislative picks. Now, the current political composition in the Capitol, right, is a Democratic governor and Republican lawmakers. That may not be that way forever, right? So at some point you may have a Republican governor and a Republican legislature, and they have then 12 picks on that body. Well, two of them come from Milwaukee County and the city. Uh, you may have a Democratic Senate or Senate Assembly. So that will change over time possibly, but they did that to address the concern of Democrats of, hey, there's somebody from Milwaukee County and the city, and that helped get Democratic votes on board between lowering the, st- the cost of the state and getting the representation to help make the deal work. As always, thanks for this context, JR, and thanks for joining me on Capital Notes. Anytime. That was WUWM's Mayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross of WIS Politics. You can hear Capital Notes every other Monday on Lake Effect. With Thanksgiving just a few days away, a familiar dread has reemerged for many people. Concern over what will be said at the dinner table. Much of that dread has to do with politics. It's a story that's become all too familiar for former U.S. representative-turned-podcast host Scott Klug. His podcast, Lost in the Middle, explores the people he calls political orphans, people who don't identify with either of the major political parties in the U.S. He joins me now to talk about it. Scott, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. My pleasure. So it's hard to have this conversation uh, without really acknowledging your part in this equation, right? Uh, You were, of course, a Republican representative in the U.S. House uh, and were a lobbyist for decades. And from what I can tell, you're 
still a lobbyist, or at least you still had a firm of lobbyists. Is that right? Yeah. So I work for Foley and Lardner, which is a large international law firm whose historic roots are in Milwaukee. We like to say established in 1844, four years before Wisconsin was the state. And reflecting their heritage, actually, the two founding members ran against each other against each other for Congress in 1848 when Wisconsin started to have representatives in Washington, then came back and developed a very successful business. So I've been part of Foley's federal lobbying practice for the last 20-some years. Why did you feel like this was a a podcast, a, a story, really, for which you were the right narrator? Well, because I span a lot of different careers. I can't hold a job. So I worked in television for about 14 years. Then I was in Congress for eight. And then I ran a publishing company for a while. And then um, I've been affiliate with Foley ever since. It's really in some ways a story that found me because when I represented Madison in Congress, I'd come out of television in Wisconsin. And I still have name and face ID for people of a certain age group. They get older every year, so the numbers are fewer and fewer. But during the original Kevin McCarthy story, I got stopped within two or three days of people in a coffee shop at the cereal line of a grocery store standing in line at a movie theater, Republicans and Democrats basically going, this is not what we signed up for. I meant the Democrats are trying to take gas stoves out of the kitchen and the Republicans are running around the country banning middle school books. So I decided with some friends to take a look at the lost political middle in America because it's really where my politics are. Brookings, which is a slightly left to center think tank in Washington, did a survey about 18 months ago with 2,000 people and asked them, Do you want a Democratic Party to the left of where the Democrats are today, a Republican Party to the right of where the Republicans are, sort of leave things alone or really split the middle? And 44% in that survey said split the middle. So in my opinion, that's 71 equally bewildered voters just like I am trying to figure out why 20 years ago would have seemed so bizarre in politics is now the normal today. And I think those nobody's listening to those people, and I think the future of the country really lies with those folks who are exhausted by the current zeitgeist. The public discourse, in my opinion, has really stretched to the extremes. We've lost a lot of local papers and, and a lot of local media, so what really dominates now is just national opinion. So everything is now filtered through a Washington lens, and I think most people are just exhausted and frustrated and angry with it. What do you hear as being that frustration? Well, I think you can. You it will be a time to figure out how the country's changed in about ten days when Thanksgiving happens. You know, we've talked to people all across the country who literally haven't had Thanksgivings for the last several years because of politics. One of our episodes on Lost in the Middle, the podcast www.lostmiddle.com, is about a woman named Tammy Pfeiffer who lives in Logan, Utah. She's got five kids in birth order. They're a Republican and independent, a Democrat, a Democratic Socialist, and a Libertarian. And she says, I did my job right because they all found their own spaces. And the kids grew up putting yard signs on when she ran for the city council. She was the secretary of education for Utah State's government for a while. Um, a special ed teacher. She and her husband sang in the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. In fact, the name of the episode is America Needs a Big Time Out. We found the mom to do it. So 
at their Thanksgiving two years ago, one of their, her daughters is a teacher, and you can figure out how that launched and the fights over masks and, and lockouts and everything else in the world. And so Tammy got so frustrated with it, she worked with a national group called Unite. And there's a lot of groups like this around the country trying to sort of break through this partisan divide and harsh rhetoric. And they decided to figure out if they could come up with a scorecard for political civility. And she worked with folks at Utah State, social scientists, worked with students to help score speech, and came out with a rather elaborate political civility index, all excited, all this work posted on Facebook, and 36 hours later it came down because the Republicans said it was a Democratic plot and the Democrats said it was a Republican plot. So in the country, you hear this great sense of anxiety that it's ripped families apart, literally. We talked to a woman in Rockford who's a farmer and she hasn't talked to her sister for 18 months because of politics. That's not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, it, people for years believed you could have the same kind of sort of good ribbing you have over politics like you have over sports, and it's not that anymore. And it's just cast a pall over the entire country. But the good news, I should tell you, Joy, is there are lots of people like Tammy trying to figure out a way to change this. What do you view as fueling this polarization? Because when I look at it, it is really vitriolic rhetoric. We just had the uh, front runner for the Republican Party call half of the country vermin, a, a uh, phrase that really echoes obviously authoritarians. You hear increasingly violent rhetoric coming from conservatives, a bit from Democrats and liberals, but it's scary talk. And to me, that seems to be fueling a lot of this. Well, so I'm not a Trump guy. Haven't been. Never voted for him. Never will. Can't imagine in which universe that would happen. And so I'm, a, I'm one of a lot of disaffected Republicans I know um, that feel frustrated with it. But I think that's a, it's a complicated story. And part of it actually goes back to your business. It goes to the media. And if you look, it's, it's a funny story that when I worked in TV in Seattle, there was a guy who was a local producer named Randy Douthat. And Randy Douthat and I lost track of each other. It was brief Facebook days, you know, Instagram things. I go to work in TV in Washington. Randy goes somewhere. I don't know where it is. And the week I get elected, I get a note from my press secretary. And she said, some guy named Randy Douthat called you. He wants you to be a crossfire. And it turned out Randy was the guy who founded Crossfire. So I did some shows, and for your viewers who aren't young enough, I mean, Crossfire was it essentially it turned serious political news into sports radio. I mean, it was a show designed to have people scream at each other. And I tracked Randy down and basically said, I'm blaming you for turning television news into sports talk. And he said, you know, it's a fair criticism. But when we were on when we were on um, Crossfire, we just used to argue. It's the First Amendment. We took all kinds of positions. He goes, now I look at local TV, and I don't know who's making crap up anymore. And then meanwhile, in 1994, some broken down car somewhere, somewhere got sold on Craigslist. But it was the beginning of the end of the newspaper industry because a third of their revenue came from classified uh, revenue. And as that's happened now, we've created a newspaper desert. So we have a cable system that's very shrill that echoes where they have to go to hang on to viewers. And you have newspapers that in some ways are sort of driven by the same agenda. And so I think it's an echo chamber now, right? It sort of feeds on each other. So it's pro-Trump, it's anti-Trump, and it sort of speeds up and speeds up. So I think the political class deserves a lot of the blame. But I also think I have to take it back to the media, and it's largely driven, I think, by the economies. Well, ultimately, we, we have politicians 
who, by virtue of a variety of functions, are going to be more polarized. Uh, I look at this in Wisconsin, and gerrymandering has a big impact on the kinds of politicians that we get when you crack and pack different districts. You're going to make the fight at the primary instead of the general election. We get politicians who are further and further apart. Do you see this as part of the problem? And in Wisconsin, we have one party who's really fighting to maintain this gerrymander and one party who is trying to change things. Without a doubt. And, and that's a big part of it, is that there's no longer incentives in the system to be rewarded for cooperation. You know, for example, if you look, and I'll get back to redistricting in a minute, but, you know, the Bill Clinton was elected largely with the railing of blue dogs who were conservative Democrats, largely more conservative on foreign policy, military issues, more conservative culturally in the 90s. The peak actually came when Barack Obama was president, when there were 70 self-described blue dogs. Last January, the remaining blue dogs gathered in a small conference room in the U.S. Capitol, and I emphasize the word small underline because now there are only 13 of them. And the fight was over what they should rename themselves. And one group wanted common sense voters because more of the leadership now were women and actually from Hawaii and New York and not from the South. And the other group wanted to split the blue dogs and they split in half. So the 13 moderate Democrats split in half completely. It's hard to find moderate Republicans that are now in the U.S. Congress. They largely have disappeared in New England, in the Midwest, and in Southern California, which traditionally was their base. When I was elected, people would go, whoa, a Republican in Madison. There also was a Republican in Ann Arbor and in, in, in Iowa City. So it was a different time. So um, I think a lot of what's happened is the middles has shrunk on both sides. And you're correct that redistricting is a problem. But if we're going to be fair... It's also a huge problem in Illinois where the Democrats have done exactly the reverse. It's the same problem in California. It's the same problem in Ohio. As we move on later in the series in www.lostmiddle.com, we're actually going to look at reform proposals in the summer series. And that'll look at redistricting fights, independent commissions, final five, ranked voting, all of those to take a look at it. Because I think we have to look at ways to shake up the system. We've got to get back to a point where people are rewarded for getting things done. And the idiocy and the insanity of this is people think if you get 64% of what you want it, you've lost. No, that's not exactly what you want. You want collaboration between the parties. People don't like to talk about compromise because that sounds like you're giving stuff away. In what world can't we get a deal done on immigration? I mean, given the surge at the border, everybody agrees something to happen. There's no reason in the world to send the dreamers back home. The kids, you know, might have been in Mexico for three days before they got here. And so it's those sort of issues where I think the people in the center look and go, oh, my God, get stuff done. Yeah. Now, as this conversation would suggest, the podcast is very uh, both sides. But it's hard to look at the landscape of American politics in some ways and go, both sides are the same or both sides are equally at fault in some ways. And, and what I'm talking about here is we have one party, uh, the one that you belong to, that is actively trying to fight against the concept of democracy. Maybe not every Republican in every legislature, in every state house. But we have a group that attempted to overthrow the last election. We also have a frontrunner for the Republican Party who is saying he's going to punish political rivals. He wants to deport, I believe, millions of people. And then on the flip side of that, we have Democrats who, yes, are looking for, you know, greater regulations. I believe you mentioned more stringent regulations on gas stoves. 
how do you put these on the same plane? Do you put these two parties on the same plane? Yes, I do. Because I, I think if you look and ask the American public, 50% of them now want to vote for independent candidates for president. The fastest growing registration in the country in Nevada and New Hampshire are for independents. Young people over the, under the age of 30 don't like any of the political parties. So the question is, do I hold Trump responsible for part of what's going on in the country today? Absolutely. Do I think it's only a Republican problem? Absolutely not. All right. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thanks. And thanks for the tough questions. Scott Klug is a former U.S. representative from Madison and the host of the podcast Lost in the Middle. Later in the show, we'll learn about a mermaid teaching young people about environmental conservation through underwater performances. But first, we'll look at the recently released National Climate Assessment and learn how the Midwest is being impacted by climate change. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. The National Climate Assessment was released last week. It's a congressionally mandated evaluation of climate change risks, impacts, and responses. It's put together by federal agencies, independent researchers, and advocacy groups, and released every five years. The report lays out the ways in which we're already experiencing the impact of climate change as well as ways to mitigate it. Heidi Roop contributed to the assessment's Midwest chapter. She's an assistant professor of climate science. She and Dennis Toddy joined WUWM's environmental reporter, Susan Bentz, to talk about this report. I think it's really important to note, and this is a through line through the entire assessment, that we know that there are climate inequities across our country, and that is true and prevalent in the Midwest as well. So who experiences the impacts of climate change how they experience climate change, and the extent to which being, there are investments being made to both um, pre- prevent pollution and the production of greenhouse gases, as well as the investments that reduce our risk and overall exposure. We know there are, are inequities and also health outcomes that come from climate change. Um, so in the Midwest chapter, I think what is really important to note is that across all of our key messages, we really focus not on just describing the risks, but really unpacking the impacts and also trying to understand what the literature says about who is most impacted, and then critically, what do we do? So where are there opportunities for mitigation and adaptation, or simply how do we prevent the problem from getting worse, and how do we prepare for the changes that we know we've set in motion? And in the context of human health and well-being, we know very clearly that there are fingerprints of climate change in our health outcomes. Uh, We know that there is increased exposure to, say, heat-related illness. Um, There is an increase in exposure to poor air quality. Um, The Midwest region this year, um, in fact, 
had some of the worst air quality in the world this summer as a consequence of wildfire smoke um, and ozone. So we are seeing those impacts, right? That increases our risk of asthma, um, hospitalizations, um, heart diseases and potential risk of stroke. There are all sorts of intersections between say the physical risk of climate change we talk about a lot and what that means for our physical and our mental health and the health and social structures of our communities. Uh, in addition to what Heidi said, yes, agriculture is a big part of our region and agriculture is one of the parts agriculture. And we have to throw water in here too because that doesn't get talked about as much as it should. Water is a big player in everything that's happening in our region, especially in the way of agriculture. Water, extreme rainfalls, variability in how much water we receive and when we receive it, and the impact that has on agriculture and other systems cannot be understated. It, it's a huge issue, a positive and a negative in what we're trying to, to discuss here in the Midwest. So yes, uh, you know, we talked about how we're being impacted by agriculture is being impacted. Everything is being impacted by climate change already. And what do we see coming in the various agricultural systems? Talk a bit about the climate smart ag component. Right. Um, you know, what this gets down to is there's two parts uh, we talk about in the way of agriculture. And Heidi kind of uh, addressed parts of these already in a different way. There's adaptation. There's what we know is happening and how does agriculture deal with that. And then there is the mitigation aspect. And agriculture is a contributor to greenhouse gases, but it also has an ability to adapt and then to possibly mitigate to some level greenhouse gas emissions by reducing our greenhouse gas emissions in agriculture and then sequestering greenhouse gases. Um, carbon dioxide is the one that get talk, gets talked a lot about. Uh, but then reducing methane and nitrous oxide, which are both agricultural uh, agricultural issues. So that was a, a big feature of this time because it has been a, a big topic over the last several years, particularly because of various federal legislation. Uh, the issue now is how do these work in reality? How do they work? How effective are they when we implement them on a widespread basis and trying to quantify those numbers? We know that you know, that using no-till practices helps to protect soils and sequesters greenhouse gases, sequesters carbon dioxide, but exactly how much when we work on this on a widespread basis is something that, that needs uh, to be about. And that's, that's something in addition about the chapter. It's not only what we know at this point, it's identifying what things we, we need to look at or things that we don't know looking in the future. I think it's really important that people start to understand their risks, the risks that they face, and how climate change matters to them in their own backyard. If we look at the national um, adult Americans who think that climate change will impact them personally, it is certainly not enough. It's well below 50% of adult Americans report that they will experience climate change. For those of us who live in the Midwest who had poor air quality this summer, we experienced climate change. That's climate change. And so we need to, I think, to connect the dots, right, to mobilize people towards action. That looks different for everyone. We all have different strengths and resources and communities and networks and can catalyze action and have influence in different spaces. But I think all of those matter. So an assessment report like this can be really important for helping you understand those risks. Maybe brush up on what some of those solutions are and the good news stories that are happening in our region. We know that hearts and minds aren't necessarily changed by facts and figures, and rarely does doom and gloom work. 
So we need to start showcasing all that we're doing and all that is yet to be done. And individuals have a role in that because individuals make up the systems that influence the change. So the federal government and funding can feel very far afield and like we have no influence. And in some cases, yes, our influence in those spaces may be smaller, but say when billions of dollars from the federal government are flowing onto the landscape as they are currently in the Midwest region to invest in say infrastructure projects and climate smart agricultural projects, I think it's important that we understand that, that there's a through line between the federal government to the farmer, right? And that there's a set of other elected leaders and community members who are informing where that money goes and who are participating in those projects and who are wanting to be part of the solution. Um, so we've talked a lot about agriculture, right? Agriculture is a huge part of the solution. And yes, while there's so much more to be done, there are so many farmers, producers, commodity organizations, all sorts of organizations connected to the agricultural sector leading the way, right? They're the early adopters. They're choosing to try to move forward in the right direction. And so I think assessments are important for understanding our risk, but I think this assessment in particular is really important because we are for the first time, I think, really focusing and trying to, to, to compile all the solution space and the action that's being done while we also make a clear message across the entire assessment that what we're doing is not enough. And so hopefully this can mobilize more people to seeing not only how climate change matters to them, but importantly, what they can do at the individual level, as well as that big systems level that we know is absolutely necessary. So Dennis, can you touch on the Climate Hub a little bit? Sure. Um, uh, I direct one of 10 hubs nationally, and there's now an international climate hub that's the 11th. We cover the Midwest, the same eight states, amazingly, the same eight state areas as the, the Midwest chapter covers. Um, and our job is to, in short, help agriculture adapt and to deal with the changing climate and remain productive through that. So that gives us the opportunity to work on anything near term, like the major droughts we've had recently, to changing precipitation, to long-term changes in greenhouse gases, whatever is involved and even sidelight things like the the smoke we've had this summer. What did the what impact did the smoke have on, on on crop production? There's a whole wide range of things that we can be involved with, and we're not doing it all on our own. We're working with partners like Heidi. We're working with partners in Extension and states. We work very closely with folks in in Wisconsin. Your new state climate office has become a very strong partner of ours. We communicate very frequently, and in fact, we help develop a, a set of Something we've done in Iowa, something we're doing for Wisconsin Extension now is a weekly PowerPoint slide update, just what's going on in the state, what are some of the impacts, what do the outlooks say, and how that's going to impact agriculture. We are thrilled to have that connection. We had been struggling for several years. Who is the right connection on agriculture and climate in, in Wisconsin? And with the buildup of the climate office, that's been great. So... Some of the language around the assessment has been that this is a time to underscore the need to move much faster, and this is not intended to be just another climate report. It's meant to be a guide. We built collaborations amongst the author teams, and we are a subset of messengers, but not the mo most important messengers of the content of this report. It's the farmers talking to one another. I'm a climate scientist. A lot of people don't want to trust me, but we each have our own communities and places where our voices are trusted. And so we need 
more than just the assessment authors and those of us who identify with this report. Everyone is an expert in the future they want to create, and we need everyone then talking about why climate change matters to them and how to move forward, because without more messengers, we're not going to get where we need to go. It's all hands on deck. Heidi Roop is a professor of climate science at the University of Minnesota. Dennis Toddy is the director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub. They spoke with WUWM environmental reporter Susan Bentz. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Coming up, we'll meet someone who teaches environmental conservation by performing as a mermaid. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Have you ever wanted to meet a mermaid? Well, now's your chance. Echo is a UWM grad student who performs as Mermaid Echo. Mermaiding is wearing or swimming in a mermaid tail, and Echo has been doing that for over a decade, all in the name of educating young people. Lake Effect's excret Nunez spoke with Echo about their passion for environmental conservation. I've been following your work as Mermaid Echo for a while now, and something that stood out to me is your passion for freshwater conservation. Where does your passion stem from? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that I was inspired to care about freshwater ecosystems ever since I was a kid. Um, I grew up on the St. Croix River, and it was a beautiful ecosystem, but of course it was kind of undermanaged, and so we'd often take our boat. We were very privileged to have access to boats. Uh, we'd take our boat out on the on the river and find trash in the water. And I remember trying to stay underwater for as long as I could to look at all the fish, and I'd be sad when I find like a piece of trash under there. And I'd bring it up and make little piles of trash on the boat deck. And so since I was a kid, I, whether consciously or subconsciously, have been, I guess, trying to find a pathway in life that would put me around water as much as possible. Um, and now we're here. I think I'm closer now than I have been ever before, which is really, really exciting. Yeah, that's really cool. And I guess did this passion for freshwater conservation have anything to do with your decision to pursue mermaiding? Is that even no, the right term? No, mermaiding came first, actually. Oh. Yeah. So I think I've always cared about the water, but I was, you know, as a kid, like ignorant to how much of an issue 
um, we are facing in the climate crisis in regards to freshwater access and preservation. Obviously, I d- didn't have any of that language, you know, as a, a five-year-old. But the reason why I started mermaiding was I had surgery on my ankle, and then I um, had to recover from that, and I did that through swimming. And um, one way you can, like, strengthen your, you know, injured limb is by attaching it to another one. So if you break a finger, you tape two together. You know, same thing happens for feet. So I would swim with a monofin where both of your feet are in one fin, and that would help strengthen the weak one. And eventually I found a tail skin that went over the monofin and up to your waist like a skirt, and it looked like a mermaid tail. And on that same website, I found that tail my first tale, I found a website. <laughs> it's basically Facebook for mermaids. It was called uh, the mernetwork.com, now kind of defunct. <laughs> but on there, I saw that people were using mermaiding as an avenue to educate kids about conservation. And instantly I was like, well, I'm starting a business. I'm 16, but I'm doing it. You know, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing or what I was getting myself into. But I just, the idea just like clicked with something very integral, I think, to who I am and what I love. But when I was in high school, I was very, very bad at math and science. And my teachers were always pulling me in after class, you know, saying we need to sit down one-on-one and work on this stuff. And I was just mortified. And then I couldn't deny the uh, the fact that I wanted to be telling more people about freshwater ecosystems. And so I said as a joke, um, I'm not smart enough to be a scientist, so I will become a mermaid because that is one avenue in which I can teach kids about the water in which I don't have to have, you know, this crazy scientific background. I only have to know um, basic, you know, education principles and outreach principles that I can teach kids. That worked well for a while um, until I started doing it much more professionally, and I learned that there is so much I didn't know. But I just kept having this bug and this itch to get into science and really learn the nitty-gritty behind, you know, why is there only 4% of research done on freshwater ecosystems when everything else is done on marine ecosystems when freshwater is our, our vital resource for survival? And now I get to say that, you know, I told myself I couldn't be a scientist, but I was wrong. Now I'm a scientist and a mermaid. (laughs) Um, So that's the full story of where I came from and why. That's pretty amazing. Like you proved yourself, I guess, to other people, but to yourself, too, that that you're able to do this. Why is it important to you to educate young people about caring for our freshwater systems specifically? Oh, my God. Thank you for this question. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. So this, I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit. Go We're going to talk about why we need to be putting conservation education into the hands of young kids also. Yes, we need to talk to policymakers. Yes, we need to talk to corporations. Yes, you can do your part to, like, not use a plastic straw and use reusable water bottles. Great. Wonderful. Love it. That means nothing if the next generation doesn't also know about this stuff. If the next generation is not brought on board to this party we're having, it's going to go all in the trash, all of our hard work. So let's do all of that, but let's also bring kids into the conversation because we know that the climate crisis most negatively affects marginalized communities, you know, BIPOC, trans kids, um, lower income communities. And we also know that conservation education, historically, at least based on the research I know, is delivered only to more affluent neighborhoods, right? We're talking the nature preschools and private schools have often conservation curriculum. Public schools do not, you know, and often it is the first to be removed if we have extra time for it at all. 
And so that's a problem. (laughs) And in order to continue to have a world that we can live in, we need to know how to prevent climate degradation from getting exorbitantly worse. And so I think that by investing in edutainment or at least conservation education at the K-12 level, we are really doing preventative measures to make sure that the hard work we're doing now in policy will be preserved. We need to ensure that our futures are going to be okay by providing access to this kind of stuff to the kids who it will be affecting the most <laughs> and who don't have access to it right now. So that's my that's my soapbox. That's why I'm doing all this. Yeah. Wow. And what's the biggest takeaway you hope young people leave with after your performances or class lesson? I hope kids take away the knowledge that they can make a difference. And so I have this little pledge that I do at every single event I've ever done. I wrote it when I was 17, launching my business, and it hasn't changed. Um, And kids that come to shows take that pledge, and it basically says that they can make a difference just by being themselves and committing to learn about this stuff and to tell other people. That's really what it's all about. You have the power to make change just by talking to people. You don't even have to make a huge habitual change in the way you live your life, but just tell just tell people, like just talk about it, you know. Somebody out there has the resources to make big substantial change across corporations and and, and policymakers. Great. Uh, just talk to them, you know. It's not all on your shoulders and working together can really make a big difference. And I think kids often in the topic of conservation are are scared, you know. It is a scary topic, uh, but if we say to kids like you have the power to be the change maker that will save our great lakes there's a really empowering message there that isn't scary is accessible and also gives them agency my last question to you i've read that you'll be graduating this december yeah um do you think you'll continue your work as mermaid echo after you graduate for sure yeah absolutely i've been speaking with a couple of clients um about procuring different sort of bigger moves in my field this is so vague i hate it when people do this but i have to do it um about different bigger moves and different plans and that they're all very very exciting and they're definitely moving in the direction of where i want to go which is um so exciting for me. So I cannot wait to see those come to fruition so I can share with you and with everybody what they are. Um, But they're all surrounding the idea of just bringing more conservation education into the hands of the people who need it the most, Um, whether that's through public performance art or private appearances, um, whether at birthday parties or or elsewhere. Um, I'm very excited about all those opportunities. So yeah, I don't foresee me not being a mermaid anymore anytime soon. I'll probably be in a wheelchair and then still like jump in the lake with my little tail and try to swim around. So (laughs) when I'm 85 or something. Big moves on the horizon. Yeah. That's good. I'm excited. Well, Echo, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. It was great to learn more about you and your work. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It was a joy. Echo is a freshwater sciences graduate student at UWM and teaches about freshwater conservation through their underwater performances as Mermaid Echo. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll have a special edition of the show. We're following up on what's happening at the Waupon Correctional Institute, where prisoners have been on lockdown for months and three people have died. 
We'll learn about Governor Tony Evers' plans to ease the lockdowns, and we'll hear from the people pushing for changes from the outside. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect. On listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.